Good day to you, wherever you are. My name is Edmund Senanu Luchu, and this is Environmental Law on Lodio. Straight to business, we are talking about the history and development of environmental law. Now, environmental law is a collective term which encompasses aspects of the law that provide protection to the environment. So, environmental legal principles regulate the management of natural resources such as forests and minerals and the sea. Environmental impact assessment is an important aspect of environmental law. So, environmental law is a collective term that protects the environment. So we have many environmental problems such as global warming, deforestation, improper disposal of human and electronic waste, um, poor hygiene, um, the carbon emissions, all those things are environmental problems. And we avert our minds to one common law case uh or rather a case that happened in 1858 which most uh, environmental lawyers think is one of the advent or the beginning of the the notion of environmental law now the great stink of 1858 which happened in britain um, caused um, a lot of stench in in britain in england over the river thames because there was dumping of human excreta into the river thames and this led to the development of metropolitan commission of sewers act 1848 so this sort of was the advent of environmental protection laws uh, and it culminated into many other commissions and uh, seminars and conferences, most notable of which is the Stockholm Conference, which is also called the United Nations Conference on Human Environment. This happened in Stockholm in 1972. Now, in 1992, the first United Nations Earth Summit resulted in the Rio Declaration. Now, the Rio Declaration is a compendium of principles that are meant to regulate environmental law in the world. Now, there are various principles that environmental law is based on, and we'll go through them one by one. Now, the foremost is sustainable development. And this has been championed by the United Nations Environmental Program. Sustainable development has to do with the right to the development to be fulfilled so as to equitably meet development and environmental needs of present and future generations. So 
it is a principle that has to do with what the present generations can enjoy and how they can protect the environment in order to leave a suitable and appropriate environment for future generations. So that's the basic principle upon which environmental law is built, sustainable development. It is also built on the, the doctrine of equity or the principle of equity. Now there are two, intergenerational equity, which has to do with the right of future generations to enjoy a fair level of common patrimony. Now, there's also intra-generational equity, which has to do the right of people within this current generation to fair access to the current generation's entitlement to the Earth's natural resources. Now, the principle of equity or environmental equity considers the present generation under an obligation to account for long-term impacts of activities and to act to sustain the global environment and resource for future generations. Uh, pollution control and resource management laws are assessed on this principle. The third principle upon which environmental law is built is transboundary responsibility, which is the obligation to protect one's own environment and to prevent damage to neighboring environments. This has to do with international law. The fourth principle is public participation and transparency. It has to do with accountable government and the right of people to hold and express opinions and to seek and receive and impart ideas regarding the environment. It also, has a, the, it also has to do with the right of access to appropriate, comprehensible, and timely information on economic and social policies regarding the sustainable use of natural resources and the protection of the environment without imposing undue financial burdens upon the applicants and with adequate protection of privacy and business confidentiality. So that's public protection and transparency. Now, the fifth principle upon which environmental law is built is the precautionary principle. And this comes out of the real declaration where there are threats of serious or irreversible damage to the environment. Lack of full scientific certainty should not be used as a reason for postponing cost-effective measures to prevent environmental degradation. That's the precautionary principle stemming from the Rio Declaration. Now, the sixth principle is prevention. Prevention. Emission limits, product and process standards, use of best available te technology and techniques for, uh, techniques for producing things, these are some of the tenets that encompass prevention, the prevention principle. So in order to prevent environmental degradation or environmental pollution, there must be prior assessment of environmental harm, licensing, there must be licensing and authorization and adoption of strategies and policies. Now, the seventh and last principle uh, probably the most controversial is the polluter pays principle 
once you police the environment you are supposed to pay all costs relating to economic activities including the cost of preventing potential harm should be borne by the one who is responsible internalized rather than imposing it on the society at large these are the principles upon which environmental law is built now environmental law because it has to do with the environment and its relation to how people are affected by it and how people's environment affect other people it also goes into international law now when we we deal with international law then we probably have to do deal with the means of getting to other nations and so it brings us to the sea and so we have to talk about how the sea is divided how nations are impacted by other nations activities on the sea and we'll talk about some cases this is the only course that will be dealing with cases and the principles behind them now the sea is divided because the sea is a huge entity and no country was given um, could conquer the sea so to speak it was divided by the united nations the league of nations so that people or nations could lay claim to a certain aspect of it and there are certain aspects that should be enjoyed by everybody now beginning from where your shore or where the sea waves end it is called your internal waters and this is where usually people situate harbors nations situate harbors okay that is then after that 12 nautical miles upwards is the territorial sea first it used to be three nautical miles and by reason of the law of the sea convention it was changed to 12 nautical miles so after the internal waters after 12 nautical miles is the territorial sea then another 12 nautical miles we have the contiguous zone the contiguous zone now another one another uh, after the contiguous contiguous zone after that 12 nautical miles we have the continent continental shelf okay then 200 nautical miles from internal waters we have the exclusive economic zone where a, a country has its economic sovereignty exclusive economic zone 200 nautical miles from the internal waters then after the ex exclusive economic zone the eez we have the high seas where every country can operate freely without any restrictions right so because there has been disputes regarding natural resources that relate to the sea the article 33 of the un charter says that any dispute that is likely to endanger the maintenance of international peace and security should first be addressed through negotiation mediation and other peaceful means now we'll look at certain cases 
that will expose the principles upon which environmental law is built. Let's look at a very interesting case. The Pacific Fair Seals Arbitration. Fair Seals. Fair Seals are a type of animals. Fair Seals. Now, in 1893, the, the Paris Arbitration sought to resolve an ecological crisis in the North Pacific. Um, because in the North Pacific, Pacific, there was a fair seal population that had become an economic and political contention between nations such as America, Britain, and later Japan. Now, prior to this, in 1867, the U.S. had bought or bought Alaska from Russia with adjacent islands. Then the Aleutian and Komandoski Islands divided the two countries and also divided the Bering Sea into two parts. That's the Aleutian and Komandoski Islands. Then the larger portion was the US side and included the Pribilov Islands. The Pribilov Islands was the breeding ground for fair seals. So, by acts of Congress, killing of the fair seals was prohibited on the Pribilov Islands and its adjacent islands. Now, a lease was given to only one company, the Alaska Commercial Company, to harvest the seals. But Canadian ships partook in the trade and were captured by the United States Coast Guard. Then Britain intervened, but the U.S. refused to release these ships. When the matter was sent to the Paris arbitration, and you remember we said that in Article 33, the United Nations Charter advises that if the peace and security of states be tampered with, arbitration and um, other conservative means should be employed in order to maintain peace now the issue that was that had a reading or the uh, reason or the matter that was asked the court was that after 60 miles boundary could the u.s con- con- control or protect the seal population and so the arbitration found for Britain and awarded damages against the United States. And so this gives us an insight into how the sea and after your exclusive economic zone, your 200 mile uh, nautical mile distance, you are unable to control what happens upon the high seas. Okay. Now, the, the laws, there's a body of laws that regulates activities of the sea or the sea itself and its resources. And it's called the UNCLOS, U-N-C-L-O-S, United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, UNCLOS. So it was even the UNCLOS which changed the, 
the three nautical miles for the territorial sea to 12 nautical miles in the territorial sea foreign vessels including warships have the right of innocent passage and innocent passage will mean that it, your passage is not prejudicial to peace and good order and the security of the coastal state so if you are passing peacefully then you do not have any military formation and your weapons are not drawn okay that is for the territorial sea now for internal waters foreign vessels must seek permission in order to dock the exclusive the exclusive economic zone was created by the UNCLOS, the united nations convention on the law of the sea and the coastal state has exclusive right over every living and non-living resource in the eez all right now there were two um very important uh, theorists called grotius and selden now grotius postulated the principle of mori liberum mori liberum principally means that the sea should be open for exploitation that's grotius mori liberum then selden postulated mori closum which says that let let the seas be closed okay so those are two um theories on whether the sea should be open or closed now states have sovereignty over their natural resources and exploit these natural resources for their own development however they have obligations not to cause injury to other states that's the transboundary pollution principle and we go to the trail smelter case in order to understand this now there was a company in canada the boundary between the united states and Ca- uh, and 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 canada there was a river just a river that divides these two countries now the the town of trail had a smelting company which activity or whose activity released sulfur dioxide acid rain into washington on the other state on the other in the opposite country now the issue was whether or not countries should be bound by obligations to protect their citizens or their environment and in extension protect other nations from suffering the degradation caused by activities in that country now in the trail smelter case it was held that the canada had to stop polluting the united states and pay damages to the united states for what had happened right so nations uh, have obligations to not to cause injury to other states right in environmental law there's also the principle of nationality of claims which states that a country or a state 
can demand and receive compensation on behalf of its citizens injured by other nations but they do not have the obligation to give this compensation to their victims all right that is the principle of nationality of claims so please take your time and also look at the nuclear test cases where the unilateral statement shows an intention to be bound but is contiguous on the exigencies or the the contingencies of that statement so the context within the statement within which the statement was made is important to decide whether or not the statement made by an international body uh, means that they want to be bound by that statement also look at the ss lotus case which is not good law anymore also read on the ss lotus cases we will be going further on on international law next week i wish you well